Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. So this morning, as I was saying, we are starting into a new series uh, called Hidden Kingdom, Present King on the Book of Esther. I got to tell you, I'm really excited to get started with this series. And I know that as a pastor, you kind of have to say that with every series that you start. You got to talk about how excited you are to start the series. But in reality, like, would you want us to say anything different, right? Like, you get up here and say, you know, this series is going to be awful. Uh, you know, we'll struggle through it for the next seven weeks and hopefully we'll just survive it in the end. No, you don't want me to say that. I don't want to say that, right? But at the same time, I think even, I'm even more excited than I normally am to get started with a new series for at least a few reasons. First of all, this is my first kind of full series with you here at North. And we went through a mini-series where we did three, kind of three, uh, three, three topical sermons on True North and that kind of thing. But this is going to be a biblical, uh, this is going to be a, a, a series on a biblical book where we go from beginning to end all the way through the book together, kind of expository style, which is really what I love to do. And so I'm excited to be able to do that with you uh, for the book of Esther this first time around. Secondly, I've never preached through the book of Esther. I've never gone through a series on the book of Esther. And third, I really feel like the content in the book of Esther and what we're looking at, the message, and what we see God doing through this book is very, very relevant for us today. It has a lot to say to who we are today, right now, as people who are following Jesus in the kingdom of God. And I know that that might sound strange, especially that last one, because if you know anything about the book of Esther, this is a book that's about events that happened over 2,000 years ago, uh, in a place on the other side of the planet that probably very few of us will ever visit. But at the same time, it is hugely relevant to who we are today. And I would also say this about the book of Esther, is that it is the only book in the Bible that doesn't actually mention God directly. I don't know if you knew that about the book of, of Esther, but kind of because of those reasons, because it's this old historical book and it doesn't actually directly mention God, the book of Esther tends to get neglected from time to time. Now, just, I'm just curious, how many of you have been through a sermon series on the book of Esther before in church? Raise your hand. Few? Almost, almost about half of you. And how many of you have been through a Bible study on the book of Esther before? Most of, notice most of the people raising their hand are women in this room of the Bible study part, right? And, and yeah, that's typically how we think about the book of Esther. Because it doesn't mention God and it's got a woman's name on the, on, on the book and there's not a lot of books that have women's name, it must mean that that's the book that women study in women's Bible study, right? In fact, uh, one of the most well-known books on this is a, is a Bible study that's written by Beth Moore. Maybe you've gone through this one before. It's called Esther, It's Tough to Be a Woman, right? And, uh, you know, I love Beth Moore. I got nothing against Beth Moore. Um, I am certainly not an expert on speaking on whether it's not it's, it's tough to be a woman. Um, but at the same time, I look at a title like that, and I think to myself, I think there's a lot more to this book than just that it's about kind of what it means to be a woman in the world. And in fact, I think as we get into this book, we're going to see more and more about how even though God is not directly mentioned, he is certainly the main character that is moving this story forward from beginning to end. And I think it's a really, uh, it's a really iffy thing to say that it's about one character or another. To say that maybe it's about Esther or Mordecai. And maybe we should just kind of live like Esther and Mordecai, like that's the example or the point of this book. Because any honest reading of this book is actually going to show us that Esther and Mordecai are very flawed characters. In fact, they probably do a little bit more wrong than they actually get right. In that sense, they're a lot like us, right? They need God's grace. They need God's provision. They are flawed characters. But at the same time, they're certainly not people that we would look at and say we want to emulate these people beyond kind of the faithful decisions that they make in a couple of situations. 
Because as you read through this book, in reality, there's not a lot of morality to it at all. It's full of conspiracy and deception and vengeance and sexual deviance and murderous violence. And that's just by Esther and Mordecai. I mean, if you look at all the rest of the dubious characters that surround them, there's even more of that stuff going on. In fact, it's so present within this book that Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said this about the book of Esther. I am so great an enemy of the book of Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. Now, I would agree with Martin Luther that there are a lot of heathen unnaturalities in this book. I don't know when the last time you heard that phrase was, heathen unnaturalities. Um, but it's kind of a great phrase. But I would agree that there is a lot of that in this book, but I wouldn't agree entirely with Martin Luther's quote because I really believe that this book has a lot to say, and I'm glad it came to us as God's God's word. With this in mind, though, why did I choose this as my first biblical book series to go through with us, this kind of godless, morally empty, out-of-touch book? Well, because obviously I don't believe that it's godless or morally empty or out of touch. I believe it has a lot to say to us about who God is, about what he has done, and what he's even doing today. So this week, as we begin, um, I'm going to start with basically an introduction. This week functions as an introduction, and then we're going to look at Esther chapter 1 here this morning. And as we introduce this book, I think there are three uh, things that we need to keep in mind. Context, first of all, is very important in the book of Esther. We've got to understand the context in which it was written so that we can understand more faithfully the message as it comes to us. And we're going to look at three aspects of context this morning. The first is what we know as biblical context. In other words, we're asking the question, how does the book of Esther fit with the rest of the story of God's God's word? So we look at scripture and we see that it's this whole meta-narrative that holds together the big story of scripture. How does Esther fit in the rest of the 66 books of scripture? What is its place in God's word and in God's redemptive story? So we're going to talk about that this morning. Secondly, we're going to talk about the theological context. So in other words, what do we learn about who God is and what he's doing by looking at the book of Esther? And not only Uh, not only the theological context as it comes to us through the book, but what does it look like for us as Christians today on this side of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to understand a book from the Old Testament that roots us in the kingdom of God there and the promises of the kingdom for us today, okay? And then third, the third context we're going to look at is historical context. The book of Esther itself is a historical book. And so it's really important for us to understand that there's a reason why God includes us in his word. God not only inspires his word and inspires action, but he inspires the timing and the history of events, the way that they unfold throughout history. We believe in a God who actually has control of history and acts in the real world. And so understanding historical context is important for all of the books of the Bible, but especially for the book of Esther. So let's start with this idea of biblical context. Where does this book fall in reference and connection to the rest of Scripture? If we're asking ourselves, what part of the story is this? Where does it fall? Well, first of all, one thing we need to understand is that the book of Esther is, about, uh, is a story about the Jews in exile. In other words, they found themselves in a place where they have broken the covenant relationship with God repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, and as a result of their disobedience, they have found themselves in exile. Now, there's a lot to that phrase, covenant obedience and covenant relationship with God, and so we won't be able to unpack all of it this morning, but I want to point you to three things in particular. There are three of the major major, um, uh, covenants in Scripture, in the Old Testament in particular, and they are the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, and the covenant with David. 
When we see the Old Testament, I don't know if you've ever wondered what the covenants are all about or whatever, but what we see is what God is doing in establishing his covenants with his people is that he is actually restoring graciously what has been broken initially in the fall. So in Genesis 3, we see that sin enters the picture as a result of the disobedience of the first human beings, and as a result, relationship with God breaks, relationships with one another breaks, all of creation falls under a curse, it breaks, and when we look at the Old Testament, what God is doing with Abraham, with Moses, and with David is restoring graciously what has been lost in the fall. So he goes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 and establishes again relationship with man. That through Abraham, the representative there, he is the one whom God has relationship with. And then in in the Exodus, in particular Exodus 19 and 20, God establishes his people in community again. He has delivered them from Egypt. He remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham. He delivers them from Egypt out of slavery and sets them up as his people. And then when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, God goes to David and says, I will build a kingdom in your line that will be an eternal king, and he will reign forever on the earth. He will restore the rule of God to the world and bring everything back to right. Right? And so those those three covenants primarily are what make up the covenant relationship with Israel. And so as the Israelites, or as the Jews are in exile, The big question that flows behind the scenes is, we know we're in exile because we've been disobedient with God, but the question becomes, is God going to still fulfill the promises that he made to us? We don't deserve it because we broke the covenant, but is God going to graciously still respond? Has he forgotten about us, or is he going to deliver us? Because there's a lot at stake here. And so that's the question that flows behind the scenes in terms of biblical context, which leads us to theological context. You know, as the title of this series indicates, we're going to see a lot in this book about the kingdom of God and who King Jesus is. If you were here with us a few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus as true king. You'll see a lot of crossover language being connected in this series as well, because this is undeniably kingdom-oriented and about a king. And we're going to see that in the very first chapter, as it sets the kingdom of God in contrast with the kingdoms of this world. And in fact, we're going to finish this series sometime in the middle of Advent, close to Christmas, and it's going to lead really well, actually, into the anticipation and the arrival of King Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. I can't believe we're already talking about Christmas. Can you believe that? But anyway, this title sums up this series well, that we believe that Jesus is King even now, ascended at the right hand of the Father, even though the kingdom at times is hidden and we don't always see the way that the kingdom is working, the King is present and he is reigning on his throne even now. That's what we believe about where Jesus, what Jesus is doing now and what we know his session at the right hand of the Father. He's ruling over all things, even though we may not always see his kingdom evident in this world, he is there. The same kind of thing as what we see in Esther. God is not directly mentioned, but at the same time, it is obvious as we continue through the book that he is the one that is bringing all things to his purposes to fulfill his promises. And so as we go through this, we see that, how the book of Esther connects to us theologically as well, because just as it was a time of exile for the Jews, we also live in a time of exile in the sense that we live in a place that is not our ultimate home. In Ephesians chapter 4, which we saw a couple weeks ago, we saw these great descriptions of what it means to be the church. We are living stones. We are people of God's own possession. We are the royal priesthood. In that same context, we are also called exiles. We are people who are waiting for our homeland. We are people who are not at home in this world, but are waiting for another 
kingdom to dawn and be fully consummated. And so we have, the, we have to have the theology of an exile just like, just like those in exile did in the time of Esther. We are people who are waiting for our true home, and in the meantime, we are reliant upon the promises of the one who has gone before us and promised that he will come back and fulfill all of his promises in the end. And so it's this hugely, hugely relevant for us today even. And speaking of those promises, a big lesson from the book of Esther is that God doesn't always just act in obviously miraculous ways. In fact, he acts in many times the mundane and average things in our lives. He works through the coincidences that seem to come together in the end. In chapter 1, as we move through it, we're going to see one of those things that's set in motion, and then by the end of the book, you look back and you think, wow, all those things that seem to be just kind of these strange happenings at the beginning that the author's focusing on actually brings together God's purposes in the end and his purpose to deliver the Jews, to protect the Jews as they're moving through the story. And then finally, that leads us into the historical context that God acts in history to preserve his promises and his purposes. So why did this book take place, where it took place, what's going on in history, those kinds of things? Well, as we mentioned earlier, the Jews are in exile. They're under the rulership at this time of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire at this time is is the big world power on the earth. It's the largest empire, as we're going to read from chapter 1. It stretches from basically modern-day India uh, to, to northern Africa and then on to eastern Europe. So a big geographical area. And we're, we're dropping in basically in the year 483 B.C., and that's, I know that's oddly specific. I'll tell you why we can be so specific with that date here in just a minute as we open up to chapter 1. But one of the things we're realizing is that the Persian Empire is at, is at the height of its power at this point. And the Jews are subjugated to the Persian Empire because 40 years before that, they had been conquered by the Babylonians. The southern kingdom had been destroyed. And Babylon, who destroyed the southern kingdom of Israel, grabbed many of the people who were living there and brought them back into Babylon as exiles. And now 40 years later, the Persians have conquered the Babylonians, and so they've inherited everything the Babylonians had, including uh, the Jewish population there as their subjects. So for someone like Esther, for someone like Mordecai, who are Jews, it's not exactly the best place and best situation to be living in. In fact, they're considered in many cases to be second-class citizens. And even though the Persians were a little bit more permissive and gracious than the Babylonians were, still to be a Jew under the Persian Empire was not ideal. In fact, in many cases, you lived in fear, fear of a king who might ascend to the throne and decide that he wants to enact some kind of racist uh, policy that completely wipes out your generation. You live from day to day under the fear of what might happen to you just because you're a Jew living under Persian rule. You certainly didn't have the rights that that an ethnic Persian did. And so with that in mind, a big part of this is how is God going to preserve his people through this entire situation? And as we open up to the first chapter of this book, which if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to the book of Esther. It's also going to be on the screen with us as we read this morning. But we're going to start in Esther chapter 1 verse 1, but we're going to open up to the first chapter of the book, and to get a little bit more specific, we're going to be looking at, um, we're going to be looking at a man by the name of Ahasuerus. Now, Ahasuerus, as he's identified here in chapter 1, is probably most likely the famous king, King Xerxes from the Persian Empire. The reason is because Ahasuerus, and there's a little bit of disagreement among this, not much, 
Most scholars believe that this is actually referring to Xerxes, but there's no Ahasuerus in the Persian Empire history. But as we put things together, as we begin to see kind of what's being described here, uh, for many reasons, historical context and personality and all the rest, this really fits a description of the notorious King Xerxes of Persia. Uh, in terms of his lavish lifestyle and the fact that he was ruling at the height of the P Persian Empire, all those kinds of things. But, so I'm going to refer to Ahasuerus from this point forward uh, as Xerxes. And in fact, in some of your translations, it might actually say Xerxes, like the NIV I know says Xerxes, for example. It's just a lot easier to say than Ahasuerus. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so you don't have to hear me struggle through that every time I say it. But then also it roots us in a real historical figure, which I think is the point of it all anyway. But one of the things that's interesting about this is as we open up the book of Esther, what we're going to see is that the author drops us right into a party. In fact, he drops us into what is really a festival of lavish parties that are going on at the time. And our main character, Esther, and Mordecai, her sidekick, are not mentioned at all in this first chapter. It's all focused on the king and King Xerxes, which is kind of strange and uh, we might ask ourselves, why is it that the author drops us into this place? Well, we're going to talk about that here this morning. But it starts here in verse 1, chapter 1 of Esther. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days uh, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his glory, of royal glory and splendor and pomp and of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now there were white curtains and violet hangings fashioned with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in the golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. A king, a queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Okay, so let's stop there for a minute. As we open up the book, the first scene that we're presented with is this huge festival that's going on. As the author tells us, this festival went on for 180 days, which is about six months or half an entire year. This festival goes on. It's a celebration, a party with an open bar for six months? I mean, can you imagine that? An open bar for everybody in the kingdom? What, is it, what does that place smell like after like three months of an open bar in the kingdom? Anyway, this is, <laughs> there's just things that I think about as I read through this. But six months of this going on. I mean, I give my kids a hard time when they want to celebrate their birthdays for a week because it just gets old by the end of it. But six months of this guy just celebrating his own grandeur and his own glory in front of the entire kingdom. And in verse 4, though, it tells us why exactly he is doing this. In the NIV, it says, Xerxes displayed the wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those words, it actually reminds me of the kind of language that is typically used in the Bible to describe God. In fact, in Psalm 145, verse 5, there's a very similar phrase. 
In, in speaking about God, the psalmist says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Now look, this really seems to be intentional by the author. He is setting us up from the beginning to help us see that here is King Xerxes, who also referred to himself as the king of kings, setting himself up in the place of God with his splendor and the majesty of his glory. And his kingdom, which represents all human kingdoms and all kind of human governments and all human power, is set against and contrasted with the kingdom of God, which is wholly something different, completely something different. And we catch on to that, and we'll actually begin to see throughout the chapter how these comparisons and contrasts are made not only in chapter 1, but throughout the entire book. It's the visible kingdom of this world versus the hidden kingdom of God that's working behind the scenes. So as we continue through this, we see that the king is, is presenting himself with all of this pomp and circumstance. And these six months of festivals were designed to show how great the king is and how great his kingdom is. Now, one of the things we catch on to in the very initial verses is that he spends a week in particular with these men who he's gathered from all over the Persian Empire. He's taken princes and governors and military leaders and brought them over to his palace. And why is that? Well, we know this event actually as the council of war that led to the Persian invasion of, of the Greeks at that time. If you know anything about the Persian-Greek, uh, the, Persia, the Greco-Persian wars, this, is, this predates that by about a few years, and this was the council that was brought together. In other words, what Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, was doing, like any good king in the ancient world, he looked at his empire and said, yeah, it goes from India to Ethiopia to Eastern Europe, but it's not big enough. I need more, right? And so he starts looking over his borders and, and saying, the next biggest place that we can invade is Greece. But in order to do that, I'm going to need the support of all of the other military leaders and governors in order to take that on. And so what he does is he throws this huge festival and brings these guys to his palace for a week, wines and dines them, and shows them all of the power and the money that he has. And he says to them, look, guys, if you just join me, we can take over Greece easily, and then you can be like me. Look at this. Look how rich I am. Look how much money I have. Look at how much power I have. You can be just like me. He brings them to this place where he's celebrating his wealth and his power to convince them to invade Greece. Now, here's the thing about this. Is that as a reader of this book initially, or as a hearer of this book initially, this book was written after the reign of King Xerxes, and probably after the Persian Empire was in decline. And what the reader knows is that when King Xerxes goes to invade Greece, he actually loses. In fact, it's one of the greatest upsets in military history in the history of the world. You ever seen the movie 300 that was done several years ago? I don't recommend you see it. It's really violent. But just in case you did see it, right? Just in case you did see it, that movie is about the decisive battle in the Greco-Persian War, where Xerxes comes against the Spartans and he's defeated by the Spartans. It's one of the most humiliating military defeats in history. And so as you're reading this as a reader, and you know that history, you're reading about Xerxes who sets himself up as this powerful king of kings, and you know already that's the guy that got beat. I mean, he got beat like a drum, and he suffered this humilia humiliating defeat. And so you begin to see the cracks in the beginning. The irony and the sarcasm with which the author presents King Xerxes is palpable here in this first chapter. And it sets us up again for the reality of the difference between the power of God, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of men. 
but it continues here. And in verse 11, or verse 10, excuse me, we begin to see this thing starting to fall apart for the king. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he, com- he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now look, things are starting to get awkward at the party now. It's the seventh day, the king's been drinking like crazy, and the fact that the author actually mentions that he's drunk and merry with wine means that it was notable among the people who were there. In other words, the king is probably drinking to the point where he is so drunk it just makes everybody else uncomfortable at the party, right? We've all been there, right? We've all seen that. I don't know if you've been there, but you've seen it. (laughs) I mean, even the drunk people at this point are like, man, maybe you should put down the wine for a little bit, right? But out of his drunkenness, the king decides, hey, bring my wife to me. Bring her out here. And I'm going to show her off to the rest of these men because I've already shown them the money I have. I've already appealed to the power that I have. And now what he's doing with them is actually playing to sexual lust. I don't think we're made to understand that the king wanted to bring Queen Vashti in front of her, in front of the people to honor her in any way. In fact, kings uh, treated queens like property back then. And probably what he was trying to do was to bring her out and to to display her as a sexual object in front of the men. To say, essentially, look what I have. Again, you can have this. Money, and he's hit all the big ones, right? Money, power, and sex. And Queen Vashti recognizes this and declines the offer because she doesn't want to be embarrassed. This leads to the king's rage. I think in a lot of ways this is one of the most desperate things and foolish things the king can do, but at the same time it's also kind of genius because he's trying to bring her fun. He's trying to convince and play to the baser desires of these men basically to say, look, I'm providing you with hope. I promise. I promise you. If you join me, this can be yours as well. But it all falls apart because of what Vashti does, and this is the result in verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, For this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in the law and judgment. The men next to him uh, to bring Karshena, uh, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Marsena, and Memucan. The seven princes of Persia and Medea who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. Now according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Now this very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she." 
So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all of his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now this advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Now, there's a lot to comment about there, about dynamics within the home. I'm not going to get into too much of that, right? Because that was another world for another time. But let me just say this. What we see happening in the midst of this is the king's reaction with his council. And what you see is what you see with, you know, really bad leaders and dictators and men who are insecure in positions of leadership, which is everything's falling apart, and so I need to do everything I can to hold it all together. And so he tightens control, and he tightens, and he reacts in a way that actually causes people within his kingdom to be more restricted, right? And so as he says to all of the women who are in the kingdom, you are to now listen be commanded by your husband, just as the king is the commander of you. And it's a picture of the king's authority over every person within that kingdom as a way of having forced authority in their lives. Now, this is what happens with insecure leaders who sense that their control is waning. They tighten the grip of control, and this is exactly what King Xerxes does. Now, everything starts falling apart, and it's almost like, it's almost comedic as you see the way that these men are reacting, the way they're reasoning through things, like, (laughs) it's just ridiculous. I mean, he goes from the king of kings to a guy who doesn't seem like he can manage a fantasy football team. I mean, things just are falling apart that quickly, and it's foreshadowing what is about to come, the destruction of the Persian army, and really the first brick in the wall that leads to the downfall of the Persian empire. Now, I think as we look side by side, as this chapter sets up for us, side by side, King Xerxes and really all human kings versus King Jesus, we see a stark contrast here. Xerxes is being shamed because of his own foolishness and what he has done. But we see in places like in John chapter 18, for example, when Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate and says, my kingdom is not of this world, and he's been put on trial, Jesus is being shamed because of our foolishness and what we have done. Xerxes does everything that he can with his power to force people to sacrifice for him so that he can save himself and save his own power. But out of Jesus' humility and real power, as he stands before Pilate, he is willingly laying down his life to sacrifice himself so that he can save us. Where Xerxes is in a situation of chaos and really has no power, uh, that, is, that is real substance, he has, and he's so desperate that he has to kind of govern through these crazy policies, Jesus is in a situation of chaos and he brings peace. Where Xerxes' power is temporary and his defeat is on the horizon, in which his defeat will cost tens and thousands of people's lives, Jesus' power is eternal and his victory is on the horizon even as he stands before Pilate. And his victory over the grave will save billions of people. And so, maybe you get the point here. But what's being presented to us from the very beginning is the distinction and the difference between the kingdom of God and King Jesus and the kingdoms of this world. Xerxes' festival in this scene was more than just a show of wealth for the princes and nobles. It was an invitation for them to place their hope in him and what he could do. It was a promise itself. 
It was a look to the kings and saying, look at all that I have. I promise this will be yours if you'll just follow me. It was, a tr- it, was a, it was an appeal for them to trust in what he was saying and what he could provide for them. And here's where it all really begins to boil down for us. It's about that all-important word, hope, because ultimately that's what Xerxes was offering his guests. He was offering them hope. He was appealing to their baser desires and their unconscious hopes so that they might follow him and be committed to him. You want to be powerful? You want to be rich? You want to have a beautiful wife? You want to live the good life? follow me, I'll show you how to get there. Now, obviously he was very convincing because the men agreed to go into war with him. I mean, just think about it this way. If you read through chapter one, you don't probably get this on the first reading, but a second or third reading, you see that the author describes for us the fact that Xerxes had golden couches in his palace. I mean, think about that for a minute. Golden couches. How insanely rich do you have to be to just build a couch out of gold? It's almost like we got so much gold, we're not really sure what to do with it, so we're just going to make a couch out of it. Because nobody's sitting in that, right? You're not going to sit on a couch and watch a football game. It's not very, I don't know, I've never sat in a golden couch, but I'm imagining it's not very comfortable. It's basically just to show off wealth. We actually know this was historically true. Other sources tell us that after the Persians retreated when they were defeated by the Greeks, the Greeks found in their encampments golden couches, (laughs) So they were not only in the palace, but they actually took him out to the battlefield with them to sit in them. Xerxes seemed to really love his golden couches. But if you're looking at that kind of wealth, you're like, yeah, it's very believable. Maybe this guy can do what he says he can do. And look, hope is a very powerful thing. And what we place our hope in has the power to actually determine the course of our lives. And we are creatures who, are, who survive on hope. We are in need of it every moment of the day. We can't live without it. So when we don't have it or we find something that we believe is false hope, we will jump to the quickest thing that we feel like might give us true hope in this world. Elie Wiesel said this one time. I think it's a great, great quote about hope. Human beings can live 40 days without food, four days without water, and four minutes without air. But we cannot live four seconds without hope. Look, when I picture that, I think about fighting for air, right? If you've ever been in a pool or a large body of water, I'm not the strongest swimmer, so I've been in those situations where I like, feel like I'm going to drown and I've only been underwater for a few seconds, and so I start to panic, and I'm trying to find the surface as soon as I can. If that's how desperate we are for oxygen, if we're even more desperate for hope, what does that look like in our hearts? How quickly does our heart maybe panic and try to latch on to hope everywhere we find it around us? And what we may realize is that the world around us is no, has no shortage of promises of false hope, promises of hope that are all around us. One of the most obvious is what we see today in modern advertising. And by modern advertising, what I mean is basically how advertising has functioned since the 1930s in our country. In the 1930s, there was a man by the name of Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays was a man who had a background in advertising, but also in group psychology. And one thing that Bernays realized is that if you appealed to the underlying hopes and desires of a consumer, That as a business, you could produce a product that would not only convince people that they need your product, but they can't live without your product. Up until that point, the way that you would typically market a product is to say, this is why you should buy the product. It's got all these great features. Like if you were selling a car, for instance, you would say, this is the gas mileage it gets. It has a smooth ride. It's really safe, those kinds of things. When Bernays came around, he said, yes, those things are important, but what's more important is that we hit at the underlying unconscious desires of the consumer. 
So the stronger pull is not only these are some great features about the car, but also that this car gives you status and recognition and identity, that a product could help you fulfill your deeper needs for the good life. We see that even today with celebrity endorsements. You see it on Instagram. You realize that some Instagram influencers can pose with like a bottle of water on the beach and make $100,000 just by taking that picture? And why do companies do that? Because they realize the power of that kind of marketing. A celebrity sitting on the beach with the water says, if you buy this kind of water, you can have the good life like this person, this influencer who's taking this picture. And they wouldn't put $100,000 into that if it didn't work. It works. It plays on our deeper hopes and desires. Now look, Bernays didn't invent something about the human conscience. He just tapped into something that is true in all of us, that God has put in us. He has put in us a desire to be meaning seekers, a desire to be hope seekers, to seek for hope. But he's designed it in a way that we would find our hopes fulfilled in him. Augustine once said this, our hearts are restless until they find themselves in you, O God. Until we find true hope in Jesus, we are restless jumping from false hope to false hope to false hope in the world. And look, as the book of Esther is going to show us over and over again, the only place to truly find the substance of hope is in the promises of God. Because what God does is he unites his promises with his character. We have a God who is sovereign and who is good and who is loving and who works everything out for good for his purposes. Not only can he do it, but he will do it and he does it for our good. And he ties his promises to his revealed character in his word and the way that he acts in the world around us. And look, Israel ended up in exile primarily because of idolatry. They broke their covenant relationship with God. And their idolatry was not forgetting about God, forgetting about Yahweh completely. Their idolatry was we hope in God, but we also hope in all of these other idols that are placed side by side with God. Look, as we live today as exiles in our world, the same kind of temptation wars for our hearts all the time. Will we find our hope in Jesus solely and the promises of his kingdom? Or do we easily find ourselves taken captive by the promises of this world? And do we find our hope in those things, divided hope in those things? As we conclude the first message of this new series, um, I want to say to you, as we move through this series, we're going to continue to see these things pop up throughout the next several weeks. And so this morning, what I want to encourage us to do, we're going to, be, we're going to enter into a time of response, because one of the things that we believe is that as we gather together in worship, God's presence is with us, and as we hear God's word, it is living and active, and so if those things are true, it should impact our lives in some way. And so we want to give you the space to be able to respond this morning to what God may be doing in your heart. And here's the thing, is that I want to encourage you this morning to do this, to repent. I know when I say repent, people get nervous. It's like a scary, intimidating, dirty word. But listen to me. Repentance for the Christian is a gift. Repentance for the Christian is basically saying, Lord, Jesus, I can't handle this. I know it's in my heart, and Spirit, I need you to take it from me. Because it needs to be left. And this morning we have... Stations that are set up, these stations are just the response stations that are set up here. These are going to be up all series and hopefully long term, but they're just a space for you to go and respond this morning. And this morning, as you're thinking about what are the things 
that might capture my heart. Maybe it has to do with your own self-sufficiency. Maybe it has to do with a quest for providing your own hope in the world. Maybe it has to do with things that are good, but they're just in the wrong place. They're not meant to be side by side with Jesus. My career, my family, my bank account, my health, even my call to ministry or my call to the mission field or my desire for hope in a relationship. All blessings, but don't deserve to be side by side with the hope solely in Jesus and his promises. So this morning, what I want to invite you to do is make your way over to one of these response stations. And simply, you can see the results of first service, but simply we have a tray with pens and paper here. And you can write a word that represents that hope that you want to let go of, that false hope that you're wanting to let go of that has a hold of your heart maybe this morning. You can draw a picture of it. Do whatever you want because this is between you and the Lord. We're not going to read these. Uh, these are secret. We're not going to you know, take these and put them on a prayer list or anything afterwards. And when you're done doing that, as a way of giving this over to the dependency of Jesus and to say, Lord Jesus, I'm returning to my hope in you. I'm repenting. Slide it into one of the cracks in the wall here and leave it there. So as we continue in worship, the band's going to lead us in one last song, and now is the time to respond. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.